It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 335 for the 24th of March, 2013. This week, are we dealing any better with Windows 8 hate? There's an uncommonly clever fraud that arrived in my email this week. And in short circuits, an interesting week in South Korea. And the feds investigate alleged Microsoft bribes. I had the opportunity this week to share my thoughts about Windows 8 with both the Licking County Computer Society and the Columbus Computer Society. Although Windows 8 continues to be the operating system that has attracted what I consider to be an unreasonable amount of fear and loathing, it has a lot of promise, and I like it. You'll find a lot of the images that I used during the presentations on the TechBiter Worldwide website, so I encourage you to check that out. And one of the most interesting questions I got was, do you love it? Well, no. I've never loved any operating system. I reserve that for my wife, kids, and cats. But in many ways, it's better than Windows 7. And I think that's saying something. Computer pundits, after widely panning Windows 8, seem to have suddenly begun to develop some respect for it. Now, Microsoft has had its share of horrid operating systems, There was Windows ME, the Millennium Edition. It was useless. It was ugly. That's something that even Microsoft admitted within a year or so of its release. And then there was Windows Vista. It was pretty, but it was still useless. So it was pretty useless. I really wanted to like Vista, and I tried to like Vista for about 18 months before I finally retreated to XP. Windows 7 turned out to be Vista done the way Vista should have been done when it was released initially. Windows 8 might be Windows 7 done better. The challenge for Windows 8 is to convince people that the differences make things better. This is the first time, after all, that anybody has tried to create an operating system that works on phones and servers and everything in between. Desktop, tablet, workstation, netbook, notebook. When I bought an Android tablet, I realized immediately why people who own tablets like them. I understood, several years after the fact, what Steve Jobs had in mind with the iPad. The Android tablet looked just enough like Windows to be confusing. It didn't act like Windows. And when I returned to my Windows 7 desktop or notebook, I kept wanting to reach out and touch the screen. And when I did, all I got was smudges. So the thought of a version of Windows that I could touch made a lot of sense to me. Perhaps the most ridiculous claim I have heard from detractors, though, is that Windows 8 doesn't work with, or certainly isn't intended to work with, keyboards and mice. Or is that mouses? If you've got the furry little rodent, the plural is mice. But for inanimate objects, like the thing you move around with your hand to move the cursor on the screen, I guess the plural for that is really mouses. I'll still call them mice. Well, the fact that Windows 8 
doesn't work with or isn't intended to work with keyboards and mice is simply absurd. And that truth will be self-evident to anybody who actually sits down in front of a Windows 8 computer and, with an open mind, gives it a try. Most, if not all, of the old keyboard shortcuts are still present. I say most because I can't be absolutely positive they're all there. I'm not sure that I know what all of them even were. But all of the ones that I used are still there. And there are lots of new ones. Those who like the efficiency of keeping their hands on the keyboard instead of reaching for a mouse will find that Windows 8 has robust support for keyboard shortcuts. In fact, I have a document that describes some of them. You can download that document from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Look for the link in this week's program, www.techbiter.com. The Metro interface is optimized for tablets, but the Metro interface is only part of Windows 8. If you have a desktop or a notebook computer, you'll spend your time on the desktop. And that has changed very little since Windows 7, except for the absence of the Start menu. And for some reason, that scares a lot of people. In fact, I was concerned about it a year ago. And my concern continued until I actually used Windows 8 on a production system. Because so many people seem to misunderstand that the presence of Metro doesn't demand desktop and notebook owners to use Metro, there are lots of silly complaints. For example, when PC World named Windows 8 as one of the best products of 2012, one reader said that the choice boggles my mind. He continued, for those of us who use actual PCs, it has little, if any, appeal. And then he said that users have to relearn everything. That kind of attitude simply elicits a sigh from me. So many of the complaints that I've read or heard about seem to indicate that the writer or speaker has never used Windows 8, but has decided to hate it anyway. But, as I said just a year ago, I was essentially in that same position myself. Without bothering to understand what Microsoft had in mind, and without spending more than a few minutes per week working with Windows 8, I had concluded that Microsoft was making a terrible mistake by eliminating the Start menu. Although I now recognize that the Start menu isn't necessary, eliminating it still may have been a mistake, but a marketing mistake. Overall, though, Microsoft made the right technology decision because the new method really is better if you're interested in speed and efficiency. Windows 8 got off on the wrong foot by shipping with an ugly Metro screen that's filled with a lot of useless apps, but that's really easy to change. For the presentation that I did, I spent probably about an hour carefully arranging the start screen on the desktop so that I could show people what it looks like. I placed the Metro apps that I actually do use on the left and then arrayed the other tiles across the screen. Doing this was actually a waste of time, and I did it only for effect. In practice, the start screen is irrelevant on a desktop or a notebook. Yes, irrelevant. The start menu is missing from both Metro and desktop versions, but so what? Just tap the Windows key and start typing the name of a program you want. And it doesn't have to be the first few letters in the program. If you type W-O-R, you're going to see Word. But I use an email program called The Bat, and The is part of its name. I don't have to start with The. I can just type B-A, like the first two letters of Bat, and it shows up. And then all I have to do is press Enter. The program starts. 
Yeah, that's right. You can start a program in seconds without ever taking your hands off the keyboard. For an operating system that's not designed to work with a keyboard, I'd say that's pretty remarkable. People say the desktop is missing, but it isn't. And it's another primary reason why the start screen is irrelevant for desktop and notebook users. You can still pin applications to the taskbar if you want to start applications by clicking them. You can place shortcuts to applications or documents on the desktop. Wow, that took about 20 seconds to get used to. You can even personalize the desktop just as you did in Windows 7. But if you have multiple computers and you use the same Microsoft Outlook login for all of them, you can synchronize your passwords, your desktop backgrounds, and more across all the machines. Oh, I hear. But without the start menu, I can't shut down the computer. Remember when Microsoft was derided for placing the command to shut down the computer on the start button? Oh, I gotta push start to stop the machine? Well, now those very same people who complained about having to use start to shut the system down are complaining that they can't use start to shut the system down. With just a couple of keystrokes or mouse clicks, you'll have the ability to put the computer to sleep, shut it down, or restart it. And the Metro interface does bring some new functionality. Metro apps exist for a variety of functions that will be useful and desirable when you're not sitting at home or in your office. Some are useful, though, even if you aren't outside. Some of the features simply duplicate functions that could be done by other means. Mapping, for example. Although it would be easy enough to open a browser and use one of the mapping services, a Metro app provides instant access to maps. The Maps app also includes indoor maps for over 3,000 venues, including malls, universities, shopping districts, and airports. There's an app for checking the status of flights, too. Ah, you could open a browser and select one of the websites that does this, or with a single click, you can open a built-in app. The Windows Store can't yet compete with Apple's or Android's stores, and the download speed seems unreasonably slow. But new apps are being added all the time, and I expect Microsoft will improve the speed sooner rather than later. Although SkyDrive isn't new, it's a real plus for Windows 8. It's both a Metro application and a desktop application. If you want to use it on the desktop, you do need to download a program, but it's a very small program. Then you can synchronize files with all your devices. And the price is pretty reasonable, too. First of all, Microsoft gives you 7 gigabytes for free. If you want more, 20 gigabytes is $10 a year. 50 gigabytes, 25 bucks a year or 100 gigabytes for $50 a year. And the more I work with Windows 8, the more I'm convinced that it's going to change the hardware landscape. Or maybe the hardware landscape is changing, and Windows 8 is just the right operating system for the changing landscape. Acer and Asus both have announced recently that they're going to stop manufacturing netbook computers. That's something that probably surprised exactly nobody. With iPads, Android tablets, and now Windows tablets, netbooks have been on the endangered list for quite a while. The Metro interface is ideal for some things. Reading magazines, for example, or books, or playing games, paging through long documents. And the desktop interface, of course, is ideal for some tasks. Writing and editing, working with spreadsheets, modifying photos and videos. So the sweet spot for hardware seems to be a computer that can be either a tablet or a notebook. Lenovo and Dell have some convertibles. 
The pricey Microsoft Surface Pro, which has received some highly positive reviews, also provides both standard and tablet interfaces in hardware. And with Windows 8, even the Windows Explorer gets a ribbon. The new interface makes it easier to get to functions that you need in the Windows Explorer. And finally, there's no confirmation question when you select a file and tap the delete key. This has been an annoyance for years. Because deleted files can easily be recovered from the recycle bin, that question has almost always been pointless, at least since the days of Windows. It used to be that traveling with a Windows computer was a challenge. In fact, when I traveled, I would take my Mac along with me. If you wanted to use a hotel's wired or wireless connection, configuring the network settings could consume an hour or more. With a Mac, all I had to do is plug it in or have it find the Wi-Fi hotspot, and I was done. Windows 7 has improved the process considerably, and I think Windows 8 has made it even easier. The primary disadvantage to tablets, and one of the reasons that they would never be used in any kind of production environment, is that there's no real keyboard. So Microsoft provided for picture passwords on tablets. A picture password consists of any three gestures that you define, and a gesture is a tap, a line, or a circle. Imagine trying to type a long, complicated password with uppercase and lowercase letters, numbers, and symbols on a tablet. That would be a challenge. Wouldn't it be easier to maybe draw a straight line, then draw a circle, and then tap the image? Or draw three lines, or two taps in a circle? Of course. And in the neat, but not really a big deal category, there's the ability to mount an ISO file directly from Windows Explorer. There's no longer a need to add an extra application, such as Virtual Clone, to mount an ISO. ISO files are similar to zip compressed files in that they can hold lots of other files. ISO files are also disk images that are used by installation programs and by video disks. If you need to work with an ISO image, you don't need to burn it to a disk or download a utility program. But Microsoft, really, did you have to borrow the silly frown screen from Apple? I've never seen this screen, and I had to find the image on the internet, and I hope never to see it. The blue screen of death is now a lighter and prettier blue. Isn't that wonderful? But it provides virtually no useful information about what went wrong. Come on, Microsoft. You can do better than that. I've referred to the new interface as Metro, and for now I plan to continue doing that. Until August of 2012, Metro was Microsoft's battle cry, and then suddenly it wasn't. Apparently, a German retailer objected to the use of their name as the name of Microsoft's new interface. Did this retailer think that someone would confuse a store in Germany with an operating system? Did they think that people would believe they had acquired Microsoft or that Microsoft had acquired them? Eh, no matter. What we have now, though, is essentially an interface with no name, at least as far as Microsoft is concerned. But at least it's a pretty interface. And it works. I received an uncommonly clever fraud email this week. 
Although the message that I received was no harder to identify as a fraud than most other similar messages, this one used a technique that made it stand out a bit from other standard frauds. This one tried to convince me that I was already engaged in a conversation with the sender. Now, that's not uncommon either. A lot of spam frauds include the RE in the subject line. But this message went way beyond that. It was a three-part message. At the bottom of the message, the fraudster created a message that purported to be from the Apple Store to me. It's dated nearly a month ago, and it says that my item, didn't specify what my item was, is being returned to the warehouse, and asks if I want to have it shipped to the original address or a new address. Now, the really clever part is part two, the next section. This is where I appear to have replied on the following day, saying, yes, please ship it to the new address and use the new email. And now, a month later, here's this new message that tells me they have reshipped my items, still not specified what they are, to the requested address, also not specified, and it displays a FedEx tracking number, specifically 71744. I would expect to remember a conversation such as this, but if I didn't, I would also then expect a list of items, whatever they are, that are being shipped, and I would expect the requested address to be shown. I would also expect a FedEx tracking number to be in FedEx format, either 12 or 15 digits. So there are three tests and three failures. Clearly, it's a fraud. But I wondered, where does this link go? And what's the goal of the fraudster? So let's look. I used Windows PowerShell to examine the URL. It's a Russian domain. By using PowerShell, it's possible to load the HTML from the website without having it activate any process on my computer. In other words, it's safe. The entire page consisted of a single iframe that simply had another URL in it. So I used the same process with that URL, knowing that PowerShell wouldn't be able to display it, because the file that it's calling is a PHP file instead of an HTML file. PHP is a commonly used file type for websites. The action failed, but in a way that I hadn't expected. As it turned out, my computer would have been safe even if I'd attempted to load the site with a browser. A vast antivirus recognized the URL as being a site that would attempt to serve malicious software and closed the connection immediately. So the fraudster didn't fool me, and my computer has not been infected. But I wonder, how many people who perhaps had returned something to Apple sometime within the past month or so saw this message, saw what appeared to be their earlier response, and unquestioningly clicked the link? Now, I have a motto that I use effectively in dealing with any message that arrives in my email inbox. In nothing we trust. Assume that everything you receive is fraudulent until proven otherwise. Your computer is going to be much happier that way. And so will you. short circuits? My, what an interesting week in South Korea. Banks and broadcasters in South Korea were all but shut down this week by a cyber attack that many quickly blamed on North Korea. But by most standards, that attack was poorly executed and appears not to be up to North Korea's standards. 
North Korea may not have a lot, but its cyber warriors are thought to be well-trained and highly capable. So who did it? Bank ATMs were shut down, TV screens were blank. At the same time, a Korean central news agency quoted Kim Jong-un, who threatened to attack the South and the United States as the U.S. and South Korea carried out joint naval training operations. A more likely suspect, it seems, is China, and the Korea Communications Commission said that specifically. But the question remains, who did it? There is speculation that North Korean cyber warriors have been trained in China, but there's no proof to back up those claims, and most of the experts who study these kinds of events express doubt that China has ever trained the North Koreans. The malware involved in the attack surfaced about a year ago. It's been dubbed Dark Soul. It's designed to maneuver around the protective applications commonly used in South Korea. Dark Soul's primary goal is to delete as many files as possible from the infected computers. The machines then crash and can't be rebooted until the software is reloaded. Earlier in the week, North Korea had blamed the South and the United States for attacks on North Korean websites. South Korea has been cautious not to blame the North without clear proof. The who-did-it question that I keep asking probably won't have a clear answer for months, and it may never have a clear answer. Department of Justice might be calling on Microsoft again, and this time could bring along the Securities and Exchange Commission. Both agencies are investigating allegations that Microsoft bribed government officials in several countries, including China, Italy, and Romania. If the bribes occurred, they would be a violation of the Federal Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that makes it a crime to pay government officials to gain their business. The law was passed in the late 1970s. Microsoft's Vice President and Deputy General Counsel John Frank wrote a blog post this week in which he noted that, frequently, such claims prove to be false. Still, said Frank, Microsoft takes such allegations seriously, and the company will cooperate with any government inquiries. Similarly, government officials refused to comment on the possible investigation, but as an indication of the number of such allegations that are made, consider that Microsoft is one of about 100 companies that are currently being investigated. If Microsoft is being investigated. A Microsoft employee who had worked in China reportedly is the person who alerted federal officials. Microsoft investigated the situation in China internally in 2010, and at that time found no evidence of wrongdoing. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.